0: This is a marvelous section here in Romans chapter 6. It brings up many questions about how the believer ought to be operating in the world today. It's clear that we live in a fallen world, there are reminders all around us. This week we had one of the worst mass shootings. This week, a major church denomination announced that they had been covering up up sexual abuse for years. Last Sunday, a pastor walked up into the pulpit, preached a sermon, and then concluded the sermon by confessing his sin of adultery uh, many years ago, only for the victim to come charging up and give her side of the story. We live in a fallen world. There is sin all around us. Sin has even crept into the realm of the church, let alone outside of the church. There are old habits that we battle with. their old struggles. their difficulties. And there's a godless world around us that doesn't really care. They encourage it. They promote it. And they would expect that we would do the exact same thing that they would do. Those in influence use their influence to, to promote evil. Those who should stand for righteousness do not. And it's clear that sin reigns around us. And then when we think about ourselves and our own personal battles, we recognize at times it's hard for us to resist evil. It's hard for us to pursue what's right, to take every thought captive. It's hard for us to resist the flesh. It's hard for us to to resist doing evil because we find ourselves inclined easily to engage in the very sin that the world naturally does freely. since all around us. And this isn't anything new. It has been around since the fall of Adam. It's been around even during the time of Christ. There have always been murders and adulteries and lies and outbursts of anger and corruption. There's always been unrighteousness. There isn't anything new in regards to the practice of unrighteousness. New mediums, maybe. New avenues the same expressions of wickedness and godlessness. And the question for the church, the question for the believer, the question for one who has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, how do we live in a fallen world? How do we conduct ourselves? The accusation that was made against the Apostle Paul is that you Christians are just going to live a licentious life. Your gospel of grace, your gospel of God's grace and favor found in Jesus Christ is just going to lead to a life of open rebellion and shame. You're not going to obey the law. You're going to live unrighteously because the gospel of grace is a license to sin. That was the accusation. Some have fulfilled that accusation. Some have lived that very way where they have used grace as a license to cover their unrighteousness. But that's not the gospel that Paul preached. Paul preached a message. And Paul responded to that accusation here in verse 2 by saying, May it never be. We don't continue to sin that grace may increase. We don't continue to live in unrighteousness. We don't continue to promote it. We live in a way that we are dead to sin. We live in a way that we are alive to Christ. We live in this particular battle each day where we are alive to God. We're in a process which is known in theological terms as sanctification. We are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're being sanctified, set apart, made holy. The struggle is that we often don't know how to do that. Oftentimes, if we are really honest with ourselves, we're saying, how come it's so hard? How come it's so hard to resist evil? How come this doesn't go away? How come the thoughts keep coming to my mind? How come the temptation keeps coming up? And how come it's alive and active and and seemingly ruling my life? Why is it so hard to do what is right? And when we find ourselves in that state and when we are saying it's just too hard, sin is too active, it's too strong, when we find ourselves in that state, we then tend to ask the question, Am I even saved? Am I even a believer? How can I be a believer if this sin is so strong, so dominant uh, that I find myself weak in the moment of temptation? We find in the midst of that, that we tend to ignore God's process for change because we just want an easy road. We want a road that doesn't cause any suffering, that doesn't cause any difficulty, that is easy for us to practice. But that's not what God has called us into. God has called us into a spiritual war. It was natural if we were dead in our sins, unresponsive to the wickedness around, and then God made us alive, we are now brought into a spiritual war that we were completely unprepared for. And now we're right in the middle of the battle and we're having to gear ourselves up. That's what Paul is laying out here, particularly in all of Romans chapter 6. He is setting the believer's mind to be prepared for the battle for sanctification. We've seen the first two truths that Paul has given. The first being that we are dead to sin states that in verse 2. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? And then he talked about our immersion in Christ and our union with him. And he talked about our anticipation of resurrection. He talked about these glories. We have, by being joined to Christ, we have died to sin. And then, last week we saw in verses 8 through 11, that we are alive to Christ. We're now alive to Christ. We live in the light of the glory of God. We live now in the presence of God. He's made us alive. I was thinking about this particular life now that's alive to God, the uniqueness of this life and what it is like. I mean, if I was to really describe a Christian and say, well, what uniquely sets apart a believer? I would say there are two aspects to a Christian that is distinct. A Christian lives a life of transparency. That is this, we live with a life that is constantly being watched. And even if you could say, well, I can hide from everybody, I can go get on a boat and I'll go out in the middle of the sea and I'll hide from everybody. You're right, you could do that, but you can't hide from God. You can't hide your mind from God, your thoughts from God, your desires from God. You can't hide your heart from Him. We are constantly being watched, whether it's by God or by others. God is observing all that we say, all that we do. We are living a life of open transparency. Everything we say, everything we do is watched and observed. Ideally, obviously, it's observed by our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's observed by the world around us. They watch and care and they observe, but most certainly by God. We live a life of transparency. So that our counsel is always under scrutiny. Our words are always under scrutiny. Our life is always under scrutiny. Everything is always being evaluated. That is a Christian life. As soon as you come to profess faith in Christ, you are engaged in a life of scrutiny. It's always been the case, but now you're in Christ. I was thinking about this recently in... uh, a friend of mine was counseling. And when they were counseling, they didn't know that they were being recorded. The whole counsel and they gave advice and they took to the scriptures and they went through and they laid out the word of God and they counseled uprightly, only for the person on the other end to be angry. And when brought to my attention, I was like, Did the person say anything wrong? Well no. Did they do anything ungodly? No. Unbeknownst to this person, they ministered and labored and they did everything that was right, but they didn't know that they were being analyzed, everything was being scrutinized. The Christian lives always aware that they are being watched, if not by God, others. Certainly, we have this open transparency that we operate by now. No longer hiding, no longer covering, no longer seeking to to hide we are open but the second aspect of the christian life that we live is we live a life of anticipation we live in anticipation we are anticipating the resurrection anticipating the glories to come anticipating our inheritance anticipating the presence with god and the holy angels I mean, frankly, I'm anticipating visiting a few pearly gates. I'm anticipating seeing the rocks with the names written on it. I'm anticipating having an angel carry me around. I mean, I'm just going to get lazy and heaven just carry me there. You know, that's my particular anticipation. I anticipate the riches of the glories to come when our collective worship will be perfect worship with all of God's people who have been. Completed in Christ Jesus, corporately gathered together with the hosts of heaven giving praise to God. And we only get a small taste of that now. We live in anticipation anticipation of the future glories. It's not like the rest of the world lives, seeking glory immediately right now, seeking pleasure right now, seeking benefits right now. The Christian lives in this constantly delayed gratification, constantly hoping for the more, constantly wanting the completed, constantly wanting the full satisfaction, only to be restrained and held back, only getting a small taste of what is promised. That is the Christian life. In one sense, it is a life of constant, delayed disappointment. Not delayed disappointment, constant disappointment because of delayed gratification. But it is in that moment that our faith is growing. It's in that moment that our hope is getting stronger. It's in that moment when we are finding greater stability, greater patience, greater long-suffering all of this work of sanctification which is conforming us into the image of the Son, is a work that is slowly building us up slowly transforming us and it's a work again the more you see the glory of god from the scriptures the more you understand his promises the more that you understand the grace that he lavishes us with, the more that you are in that state of anticipating. I want perfect peace. I want to see perfect love. I want to experience perfect joy. I want to experience the riches of of sinlessness. I want to enjoy all the riches of being in the glory of God. And, And every time I get a taste of it, I want more of it. Delayed gratification it's anticipation. And that's what God has called us to in the midst of this battle of sanctification. We are dead to sin. We're alive to God. And the more that we're alive to God, the more we're aware of our frailties and weaknesses, the more we are aware of what we're anticipating to come. Perfections. But the Christian life doesn't stop there comes to the third aspect, which Paul lays out here in verses 12 through 15, and that is that the believer is engaged in a spiritual war. The believer is engaged in a spiritual war. The believer wars against sin. Notice verses 12 through 14, Paul says this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." This final aspect here that Paul is describing here, the three reasons why the Christian isn't going to be engaged in a life that is dominated by sin is because a Christian is dead to sin, he's alive to Christ, and he's at war against sin. He is called into a spiritual war. That's what verse 12 indicates for us. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Verse 12 is the command. There are also three more commands in verse 13, but 12 is the emphasis. Verse 13 and 14 are the supports. Multiple commands in this. Four commands stated in this, these two verses, 12 and 13. But in these commands, Paul is laying out for us the particular spiritual battle. Therefore, points to the ideas that came before. Her. Therefore, because you're dead, therefore, because you're alive to Christ, because of these two realities when you've embraced the gospel of Christ, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This isn't a command, or this isn't a suggestion, this is a command. This isn't kind of some free advice that Paul is offering. This is a command, an exhortation from the apostle to the church. To the Christian, to the one who believes in the gospel. It's a command. So that if we disobey the command, therefore guilt comes. And shame comes. And disappointment comes. To disobey and disregard the command of God will bring uncertainty into our lives and cause confusion and even spring up doubt. The command that Paul lays out here is do not let sin reign. The word reign has the idea of rule. It was used multiple times back in chapter 5. Just notice some of these in verse 14 of chapter 5 says, nevertheless, death reigned through the one, from Adam until Moses. That is, from Adam until Moses, death was ruling. Everyone who came in after Adam up to Moses, everyone died. Death ruled, it reigned during that time. Jump down to verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Adam brought it. Adam brought the sin. And when he brought the sin, he brought death. And death reigned during that time. But, as the verse goes on, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Jesus brings the reign of life. Adam brought the reign of death. Jesus brought the reign of life. Jump down to verse 21. You see this again. So that... As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. You have the reign of righteousness. You have the reign of death. This is the rule. The word reign here in the, in the Greek is basileo. In the noun form, basileus is translated as king. This word, again, is the idea of do not let sin be a king over your mortal bodies. That was in the noun form. It's in the verbal form here. Do not let sin act as a ruler over your mortal bodies is the idea. Sin is not to operate in such a way that you go out and obey it like a kingly authority governing you and directing you. It doesn't have rule over your affections. It doesn't have a rule over your desires. It doesn't have rule over you. How would it rule over you? It tells us in verse 12. So that, so that phrase, so that you obey its lusts. Particularly, how does it rule? So it leads the body to carry out its desires. Do not let sin operate in such a way that it has a rule over you that you obey its commands and carry out its lusts. That's what Paul's saying. And I can tell you this any believer who has embraced the gospel of Christ who ignores this command is going to be in a miserable state. You're going to feel conviction. You're going to feel a lack of assurance. You won't have confidence in your spiritual life because you have the wrong king ruling over your affections. The believer is engaged in a war. The believer is engaged not in a physical war. We're not in a war against governments. We're not in a war against the world around us. We're in a spiritual war, a war against sin, against rebellion against God. We're in a war that is. That is sin trying to rule over our individual members. and So we need to not let sin reign. Now the question would be, how do we not let sin reign over our mortal bodies? To which Paul gives then four ways here. Three commands and a truth. Three commands that come in verse 13. First way is this. The believer wars... By keeping the body away from sin. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 13. And do not. Again, the and is the subordinate idea. Here is in light of the command given. Now he's going to give a series of supports. And do not go go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And this would be just very obvious and yet it is 99% of the time ignored. It is so obvious and so plain, and yet it is ignored in regards to the battle of sin. Think about this, it's most obvious practice. The idea is do not give any member of your body over to the rule of sin. Don't let the members of your body, and I would say both the physical members and the immaterial members. Don't let the material or immaterial members of your body be given over to sin. What do I mean by that? Meaning, obviously, the physical members, the hand, the eyes, the ears, the mouth, do not use any of the physical body to engage in evil. Be like Job when he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a virgin. The idea is, I am not going to let my eyes be a vehicle to look upon evil so as to engage in that which would be unrighteous. Don't give your eyes to looking, or your ears to listening to what is unrighteous, or your hands to performing, or your mouth to speaking, or to your feet to pursuing evil. Don't give your mind to dwelling on it. Don't give your body to inviting evil. Not as in the physical realm, but also then in the material realm. Don't give your talents and abilities the total makeup of your personality over to the practice of evil. Don't give all of your collective abilities over to the pursuit of evil. Don't let it rain. But here particularly is don't go on presenting your bodies, your mortal body, your entire makeup over as a vehicle to carry out unrighteousness. This is the negative side, the put off side. Do not let any part of that, your makeup be a vehicle to carry out sin. Put restrictions on yourself. The point is that this means that we have to look at our vulnerabilities where we're tempted and and may have to limit ourselves in certain ways. There are certain temptations that you have that others don't have. There are certain sins that are easy for you to engage in that others don't have to, and vice versa. There are certain things that don't tempt you at all that tempt others. So that you then have to analyze yourself and say, what must I do to make sure that my members aren't engaged in the pursuit of evil? It may mean you have to give up a liberty. It may mean that you have to personally restrict yourself. It may mean that you have to invite accountability. It may mean that you have to pursue a transparency before others. It may mean that you have to fill your mind with truth so that in the moment of temptation, you're ready to be vigilant. It may mean that you have to give up certain pursuits because you're just not strong enough to resist in those moments. But the idea is here then, you do not use any instrument of your material or immaterial makeup as a vehicle to carry out evil. That is the battle plan to resist sin. Frankly, the battle tends to be too hard because we just are careless in this category. It's kind of like the little kid who loves dessert and he goes to the store and says mom i really want to buy this candy okay i'll buy it for you mom I, i really want to put the candy in a bowl okay we'll put it in the bowl i really want the bowl right here on my on the counter on the table if we put it on the counter there it's going to tempt you no it won't tempt me and before you know it, you come back and half the candy is gone what happened I had to have the candy. It was right before me. I kept seeing it. I just had to have it. Well, yeah. If you just left the candy at the store or you put it away, you hid it, it would be less temptation. Your eyes saw and your mind dwelled upon and you're drawn in. It was so hard because the temptation was always put before you and you never resisted. Battle to resist evil means I do not let the, any member material or immaterial of my mortal body to be a vehicle by which sin can be carried out and we guard against it. I understand the flesh is weak. I understand their difficulties. So we must know for our own hearts how to guard against that. Secondly he brings out here a nuance, this is interesting. He says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. I don't believe here that he is saying, go and do righteousness. Because that's going to come next. Notice, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The very members you are to be keeping from evil, he's about to tell us, present those members as instruments of righteousness. So what is he saying here? But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. I think he is saying this here. Make your heart sensitive to the things of God. I liken it it to the words of Isaiah. When God had asked, who shall I send? And Isaiah responds, here I am, Lord, send me. There is a heart that is now in tuned with spiritual things, a heart that is in tuned with righteousness, a heart that is now sensitive to the glories of God, sensitive to righteousness, sensitive to godliness. Being alive to God is now prompted by the things of God, enticed by what is upright and holy and good, encouraged by what is truthful I mean, there's a, a sense here that we can learn Christian language. You know We can learn to, to talk about love and, and talk about God's forgiving and, and God reconciling. But there is a difference between being able to talk about doctrinal things and then loving doctrinal things. Loving righteousness. Or loving the fruits of righteousness. There's a difference. Like Any parrot can repeat a doctrine. But it is a believer that rejoices in righteousness. Rejoices in the truth. It's a believer that rejoices in godliness. Because they have been born again. And they can see the things of God. And they delight in the light. This is the idea here. You are alive to God. You are now sensitive to godly things, the things of God. So that you live in such a way that you are are responsive to the commands of God and the righteousness of God. You live in such a way that when God speaks, you are a soft heart ready to respond to the truth. Now, I need to clarify that statement. Because I think the average Christian hearing that statement means, I have to do whatever it is that comes upon my mind that I think God would want of me. So if I think God wants me to sell everything and go live in a cave, that must be what God called me to do. The pastor's just telling me to live a life in total submission to God, that then whatever crazy idea comes upon my mind, that must be of God. I remember meeting a particular family that came up and said something like this to me. God has told me to sell my house and buy a bus and travel around the U.S. and visiting churches. I said, wow, that's amazing. How how do you know that? Well, because he's just put it on my heart. Really, he's put it on your heart. Yeah, and we went and we found a bus and we were able to buy it. Oh, and so... Because you had the finances to be able to buy a bus and you have a desire to go out to these churches, this is God speaking to you to send you there. Yes. So what did your church say about it? They said, well, we couldn't re- they couldn't find anything wrong with it, so they're supporting us. Listen, I'm not calling you to that, to any crazy idea that comes into your mind. What I'm calling you to is, Is that anything that God has revealed from the scriptures, any command, any directing that God has said from his word, your heart should be in tune to it. When I asked that couple, do you have any training? Are you prepared to teach the word? Do you have a life of godliness to prepare to be an example? They didn't have those things. But they did not have the money to buy a bus to travel around. And I thought to myself, well, using that logic, Elon Musk, Elon Musk could say, God had called me to be an astronaut because he has the money and the ability, and so he got sent out. Now, there has to be something distinct that we're saying here, and what we're saying here is whatever God has revealed, whatever he has made known to us, whatever he has made clear, we should be responding to that. Maybe he would call you to that, but you wouldn't know it without being under the scriptures, being prepared, and being sent out by his people. The point in this is that those who are alive to God are sensitive to the commands of God, to the instruction of God. They're sensitive to the truth when the truth is brought. They're sensitive to righteousness when righteousness is revealed. They're sensitive to godliness and they're seeking to cultivate godliness because they are alive to the things of God. We often war in sin and it's often harder because we aren't satisfied in the riches of God. This leads to the third category how do we battle? At the end of verse C, the believer, or in verse 13, 13c, the believer wars by presenting his body to righteousness. Again, so again, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The very instruments, and this is the put on. The first is put off, stop practicing evil with your members. Instead, put on a mindset that you're alive and sensitive to the things of God and put on righteousness. Do good with those members. Do righteousness. Let your mind dwell on right things. Let your hands practice doing right things. Direct your feet to what's right. Speak what's right. Listen to what's right. Use all the members, both the material and immaterial parts of your makeup. Use those members to engage in righteousness. The pursuit of it and the practice of it. This is how we war. It's how we war against sin. We're not, again, making excuses for sin and baptizing it. We are using all of our members for the practice of righteousness. It leads us to the final truth that he revealed there in verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Fourth principle is that the believer wars by following a new master. Sin is not our master. Instead, it is the grace of God that is our master. Christ is our master. Sin is not mastering over us, so that when sin gives out its order, I don't have to obey. I don't have to obey sin's order, we don't have to believe its lie. We don't have to engage in unrighteousness. We are not under the mastery of sin any longer. And the more that you progress in your spiritual life, the more you become aware with, that sin is lying to me. It's promising life, but it can't give me life. It's promising peace, but it can't give me peace. It's promising me joy, but that joy is always temporary and then brings hurt. The sin constantly lies, but what doesn't lie is God. God hasn't lied in His Word. God's ways brings stability and brings peace. God's ways bring encouragement and hope. And this grace that God has given us is a grace that only made us not only made us spiritually alive, but it is also a grace that puts before us good works that we should walk in Ephesians two ten. Unique, specific, purposeful opportunities for you to demonstrate the riches of God's glory as you obey his word and he receives glory through you and you find peace with God and a love for the brethren all of this is grace moving us and sanctifying us and transforming us into the image of God To the Christian, is that a spiritual war against sin because we are living in the grace of God? I I, I again chuckle to myself about the idea that life was so easy before I was a believer. Before I was a believer, I didn't care about sin, it never pained my conscience, rarely pained my conscience. It uh, it was easy to engage in and joyful, and I would encourage others to do the same. But then Christ came and opened my eyes to see, and all of a sudden now, even the smallest lie weighed on me. And the outbursts of anger grieved me, and the engagement of lust hurt me. There's a realization that being alive in the grace of God was a heavier challenge than being dead in our transgressions and sin. I recognize that is the war, that is the spiritual challenge. Oftentimes, I wonder why it is Christians struggle with this war of sanctification. It comes down to this oftentimes, we just want it to be easier. To be easier to say no, to be easier to do what's right. But it's also because we're confused at times. Think about it. There are one of two errors that we typically fall into in, in regards to sanctification. Uh, there's, of course, antinomia, and we just deny it altogether, but that's not the errors that we're likely to fall into. Likely, one of the errors that we're, we could fall into is, on one hand, this that we think sanctification is entirely a work of God. He does it all. He does everything. It's in the language of all just let go and let God. He's going to do it all. He's going to take away my temptation. He's going to take away all the difficulties. He's going to do all the work, taking it all away. It's the work of the Spirit to take away all of the temptation. So since the temptation hasn't gone away, well, the Spirit's not helping me, and uh, I just need to wait for the Spirit to help me more for me to be delivered. That's a mysticism. Somehow God is going to come down, just deliver us through so we don't have to work on our part. That's an error on one side. The error on the other side is a moralism. All right, then I will do it. I will labor. I will strive. In all my efforts, I will work out this salvation. I'm going to do everything that I have to do. I'm going to obey the law perfectly. I'm never going to sin again. I'm going to be perfect in my life. That's only going to lead to a self-righteousness. A moralism, self-righteousness, and what's going to happen when somebody lives in that is they're going to become angry any their sin is pointed out because they can't live it righteously. What is the path of sanctification? The path of sanctification is that, you, that God and is at work and you are striving. Meaning, after all, look at what our text says to us. Verse 12, the command for us, do not let sin reign. Why? Well, verse 14, because you're not under law, but you're under grace. It is the... Spirit of God at work, moving us and transforming us, who's made us alive and drawn us into the image, or drawn us into the presence of God, and we are being conformed into the image of Christ. It is God's work, God's grace doing that, and at the same time, we are not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. It is both. We are trusting in the grace of God to do His marvelous work, to reign and rule through us. And we're responding to that grace in a will that is yielded to what is right. We do that in faith. God is conforming us into the image of His Son. We don't let sin reign, because to let it reign, we'd only be filled with guilt and misery We don't let it rain, not because we are great within ourselves, but because we have been lavished with the grace of God that has set us free. And then we walk in that grace to be transformed into the image of the Son. And therefore, sin does not increase. Instead, we are alive to God, dead to sin, and at war against this sin. When we come back next time, we'll pick up in Romans 6.15 and see the second half of this spiritual battle. That's the first half. I'm going to give you a break for a few weeks, then we'll pick it up again. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these rich truths and the way that you work in us and through us. We're thankful for the truth of your word that is... Engages our minds and sanctifies our heart. And when we are tempted to be frail and weak, it's may we turn back and see the the grace that you've lavished us with, protect us by. And as we hold on to that grace and we walk in your grace, may we grow in strength as we yield to your ways. And as we're more sensitive to the way of righteousness, and we find within that the producing of all kinds of fruit, find joy, find the Spirit ruling and reigning in our life, we find victory to overcome evil. And in the midst of all of that, then we find greater confidence and assurance that indeed we are children of God and that we have the anticipation of eternal life. May we go to war against anything that would rob us of that anticipation, anything that would choke it out. For may the flower of our assurance be strong and the fragrance be evident to all so that one would see our lives and know that there is something different because of the rule of Christ in our hearts and lives. We're not re- controlled by the passions of the flesh and we're not dominated by fears and worries we're not dominated by the lusts of this world but we are controlled by the principle of life that you have started within us and the rule of Christ in our heart and life and that we are living new each and every day We're thankful for the marvelous work of the gospel of grace, and we pray that it would be abundantly evident in our homes and in our workplaces as we go out and live this truth out. It's in your blessing we pray. Amen.